1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, you know, if you get a preacher behind a microphone around Christmas, every preacher has the Christmas shtick. Do you know what I mean by that? Where we kind of like go off on Christmas, where we start talking about how Christmas has been co-opted by all the secular humanists, that Christmas is all about Christ, that, that we, we need to remember the reason for the season, dadgummit. You know, that was a little, little Coach Bowden there for you. Um, you know, every pastor has one of those. You're not going to hear that sermon today. Now, that's going to be chill kids next week where we tell your parents they need to sell and donate all of your gifts to, 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 to charity this coming year. Okay, that, that's next week. But it's not going to be this week. And the reason is that I think, you know, even for those who are not particularly religious in our culture, um, and, for, and certainly for, for, for those represented in this room, the vast majority of people, whether religious or not, Christian or not, know that Christmas is somehow connected to the birth of Christ. Even if they don't celebrate it, even if they don't particularly recognize it um, in a meaningful way, they, they know it. I mean, Christ is in the word Christmas. So, so that's not where we're heading this morning. But I do want to say something that's probably pretty radical for a preacher to say around Christmas time. And, and it goes something like this, that the birth of Jesus, as important as it is, and as foundational as it is, may very well not be the most important birth that you consider this Christmas season. Pretty radical. Not to say that it's unimportant, not to say that it's not foundational, but for some of you, in terms of where you are personally with your soul, that may not be the birth that deserves your utmost consideration. In fact, we're going to, as we look at it this morning, there's going to be, in fact, two births that I'm going to call us to think about and consider that Peter would have us think about and consider this morning. And this this is super important for us, maybe who've grown up in the church, who are particularly religious, um, we, we've done all the Christmas plays and the nativity scenes, and we've sung all the carols, and this has just kind of become rote for us, and we know this is the reason for the season. But one thing you and I need to consider is that these two births are going to play a particular eternal soulful significance to us. In fact, it's going to be possible for, for you, if you've been raised in the church, to recognize and to celebrate the first birth without embracing the second birth. And and we need to know if we celebrate and remember the first birth, but we neglect this thing that Peter talks about in terms of the second birth, the thing that we've been singing about, it's going to do us no earthly or eternal good. Now, we we sang about this a moment ago in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and this is a hymn written by Charles Wesley. Charles was the brother of of John Wesley. He's written many, many famous hymns, Uh, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, um, and Can It Be, a whole number of things. But this comes, these words come from the third verse. You know, the third verse in the Christmas carol, you know, is the one you don't know, right? We all understand that. Okay, the first verse we know, the second verse we kind of know, and the third verse we could never be trusted to do carpool karaoke with it, right? Okay, so, so third verse, here it is. Listen to these lyrics. Wesley is going to tell us about these two births. 
He says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Now here here are the two lines that, that we want to focus on. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. You know, the first birth that Wesley talks about is the one that's most obvious. It's the Prince of Peace. It's the Son of Righteousness. It's why we're here. It's why we're singing and caroling and coming together on Christmas Eve. This is the manger, the stable, the star, the shepherds, the nativity scene. We, we get this. This is, a, this is about Jesus Christ. But Wesley says the first birth didn't happen just to happen. In fact, the first birth is a means to something else. So when he says born to, that's just the old English vernacular, which means he was born in order that, or he was born so that. He was born for this particular purpose. He didn't come just to come. You know, if you ever have any spare moments on your Sunday afternoon, I'm sure most of you are are fasting and reading your Bible, but if you're ever flipping through the channels on a Sunday afternoon, invariably you can always find on the sci-fi channel some particular show which is about aliens and about the origins of life. And, and, and there's all sorts of theorizing that, yes, at one time and some, sometime in the, the very distant past, we were visited by aliens and who left this sign of life and this sign, and, and, and they're sort of pointing our way to the future. We're not exactly how, but if you can kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together, we can sort of figure it out and hieroglyphics and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes people treat the birth of Christ in that way. It's like a significant marker. It's a, it's a birthday we celebrate without really remembering, recalling that Jesus came for a particular purpose. And and that purpose is crystal clear all throughout the Bible. It's as Wesley says, he has come to give the sons of earth. That's all of us, men, women, children. He's come to give the sons of earth second birth. We have to ask, where, where does this language come from? Where, where, where is he drawing this from? And if you've been with us studying the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, we've been in this thing for almost two years, you'll, you'll recognize this language. This comes right from John chapter 3. This is when Nicodemus visits Jesus at night. And now remember, Nicodemus was the cultural equivalent of the evangelical. He knew his stuff. He graduated at the top of his, of his seminary class. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was wealthy. He had status. He, he kind of had it all, but he knew there was something missing deep in the recesses of his heart. And so he approaches Jesus, and he asks Jesus about all this stuff that he's teaching. What does it mean? And what does Jesus tell them? He says, Nicodemus, you have it all, except you don't have the most important thing. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And this confounds Nicodemus. He doesn't, he doesn't understand it, doesn't know what it means, doesn't know where it's happening. As we saw last week, though, where Nicodemus is in fact born again, his life is radically transformed. But remember that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, undoubtedly, all the other disciples are kind of sitting around Jesus. They're, they're bystanders. They're listening in on this conversation. And Peter was there. 
And you know, Peter, he was always inserting himself where he ought not to be um, at the most inopportune moments. But on this occasion, it seems Peter was quiet. Peter was reflecting. Peter was listening. And now Peter, 30 years later, writes 1 Peter 1. And, And with that conversation with Nicodemus ringing in his ears, listen to what Peter says. We're going to read just a couple of verses, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, and then verses 22 and 23. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, there it is, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since, here we are, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, that phrase, born again, let's, let's unpack it here just for a second. Born, we get born. It just means to make, to spring forth, to conceive. None of us had anything to do with our first birth. Hence, anything born is made new by thus a process outside of themselves. So we, we, get, that, we get that piece, born But this part, again, is kind of what confuses us sometimes. But the word, again, simply means um, from above. You must be, Peter says, born from above. Peter seems to be indicating, now listen, this this is crucial, that there's something that must happen to you and to me that originates from the outside of us. There's something that, that, that must happen. There's a transaction. There's a process. There's a supernatural, miraculous something that happens by the work of God's Spirit inside of us. You see, see Peter uses these terms like undefiled and unfading because we know this to be true. And, and we're reminded of it every Christmas, aren't we? That this outward body that we have, our, our lives, our relationships, they're all fading away. Maybe this is a Christmas that you are celebrating for the first time without a spouse or a grandparent or a child or an aunt and uncle. Maybe your health is in a radically different place this year than it was last year. Maybe you're facing the prospect of, of divorce. Your marriage in the process of 12 months has done a complete 180. But there's something typically this time of year that reminds us of the temporariness of life, that we are fading, that we are perishing, that, that, that this life is passing away, which should really grab our attention when Peter says, Jesus has come, has caused us to be born again, now look at verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And Peter says this is only possible because of divine initiation, something from outside of ourselves. We don't need a little bit of refining. We don't need three tips 
on how to better figure out and live our lives, Peter says you need something radical, something transformative, something that has to be initiated from the outside of you. You must be born again, and it can only happen by the initiative of God's sovereign work of his Holy Spirit in your life. Now, theologians have called this process of being born again a number of different things. Some have called it effectual calling, where God calls people. Some have called it regeneration. Here's how the shorter catechism describes this process of being born again or being regenerated. When I was in seminary 30 years ago, whatever it was, we had to to memorize the shorter catechism, write all the answers down. I wish I knew it by heart. I don't, so be encouraged. Here we go. Regeneration, here we go. Question 31. Regeneration, and and just, just stop here for a second. If you're a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ, I want you to... Oftentimes we stop, we, we, we fail to stop and reflect on what divine miracle has really happened in our soul to unite us to Christ. I want you to think about this. Regeneration is the work of God's Spirit who convinces us that we are sinful and miserable, who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and who renews our wills. This is how he persuades and makes us able to receive Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. That is what Peter is talking about. We we are all on a a one-way road to self-destruction, one-way road eternally away from God. We know there's something not right in our life. We know there's something not working. And Peter says, you, you are powerless in and of yourselves to fix this. This is something only God can fix. Only God can send his Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart that you can see yourselves for who you truly are and that you can see Jesus Christ for who he truly is and he unites your heart to his through faith, he remakes you. He regenerates you. This is the second birth. This is what it means to be born again. Now, I I'm totally understand that culturally for us, this term born again comes with a whole truckload of cultural baggage. I totally get that. If you're a child of, of the 70s, being born again might sound kind of new agey or John Denvery. Do you know what I mean by that? Rocky Mountain High, he was born in the summer of his 27th year. Some of you slow dance to that song and you know you did, all right? It's about finding yourself and moving to Colorado and all these sorts of things. Some of, you, so some of us have that sort of conception about born again. It just sounds kind of, kind of weird. Now, some other points in time, we have a real visceral reaction to this idea of being born again, especially culturally. We just think about Jesus freak. We think about Chuck Colson, who was this inside Washington, inside the Beltway guy who was involved in the highest levels of government, went to prison over Watergate, wrote a book called Born Again, and we just think, this guy is a freak. People who, are, who use this kind of language are just like these super spiritual cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs kind of folks and just like, oh, it's just uncouth and unsophisticated and we sort of want to keep our distance from these folks. This is all sort of cultural baggage we bring to this, 
phrase born again. But you know what? It's always been this way. In fact, when Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, and he was assisted by George Whitfield, wrote it back in the 1700s, this idea of being born again was super controversial. So in the early 1700s, this was after the Protestant Reformation, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which at one time had been vibrant and alive and and part of the reformational tip of the spear, so to speak, had really grown cold and stale and dead. Christianity was something that you were born into. Your church was kind of like your social club or a social organization. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were just kind of your rites of passage. In fact, they were more like your civil rights. They were something that were owed every single person who kind of grew up at that time who was a part of the church. Now, in, a, in just a little bit, we're going to have four folks who were baptized this morning. And, and if they were living at that time, it would just simply be because that's the way things are. It's like a rite of passage. It's just kind of what, what happens at this particular phase of life. There was tradition, absolutely, but there was no living reality. In fact, it was so bad that many of the ministers of the Anglican Church at the time were un- unconverted. See, it was such a, a lucrative, established, traditional pathway to, to, to financial well-being that a lot of men sought out um, the bishophood because it was a path to financial provision. And, and the bottom line is that in the 1730s, all this was a giant mess. Until a group of ministers and lay people called the Methodists, and God blessed the Methodists. They called them Methodists because they emphasized the methods that were needed to grow personally in your faith, to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. So they, they emphasized revolutionary sorts of things like praying and Bible study and accountability groups. And most importantly, they emphasized this idea of being born again, that one had to be converted in order to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And and amazingly, as they went out and preached, and as they held services, this amazing thing began to happen. People by the scores began to be saved. And they were showing emotion, and they were coming to faith, and they were, they were flooding the churches. And this was hugely controversial, hugely controversial for, two, for two, well, many reasons, but here are two. One is, it was just uncouth. These miners and lower-class people coming into church and being saved and praying out loud and raising their hands. This was just, this was not civilized Anglican sorts of ways to do things. So it was uncouth. But the second reason it was highly controversial is the same reason born again is highly controversial today is because it was offensive. See, to say that you and I need to be born again is to say that there's something really wrong with us. There's something really deep within our souls, within our hearts, and within our lives that we can't fix ourselves. To say that we must be born again means that we in some way, it seems like, need to die to who we currently are 
And we need to be reborn, remade into something that God would do within our hearts. See, it's, it, it, that is a tough road. It's one thing to acknowledge the birth of Christ. To acknowledge that it's one thing to, to, to play church and, and give our mental assent and recite the creeds and the scripture passages and say, yes, I believe in the birth of Christ. It's quite another to say, I believe I need new birth. I believe that I need to be remade. It's another thing to recognize that my, that my sin, my imperfections, have not just damaged the relationships around me horizontally, although they have, but it, my sin has done something to, to disrupt my communion and relationship with God vertically. And thus, I need to be transformed and changed from the inside out. See, it was offensive in that day, and it's, it's just as offensive for us. See, sometimes we think of ourselves like the Christmas present that your child wraps. You know, all of you are, are wrapping your gifts right now that you will donate next week to charity. We get it. And sometimes your kids will, will, will attempt their own wrapping, particularly if they're little. And you can always tell the gift the kid wraps, Right? like the tape's all messed up and it's folded over eight times and it's stuck in the public's bag and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and as parents, it's like, well, we have to kind of come behind them and sort of rewrap that and tidy that up and tape it over. But we know that underneath it all, the gift is just fine. The gift is unaffected. See, sometimes we are mistaken when we think that's how our lives are. That we just need a little bit of refining we need a little bit of rewrapping. We, we need to be kind of taped over and given kind of a new outer shell and a new, and a new package. It's coming up on New Year's. We just need a new financial plan or a new reading plan or three tips or financial success or what have you. And God says, your problems are much deeper than you ever realize. There's something defective at the heart of this. I don't want to rewrap you. I want to remake you. I want to renew you. I want to open your eyes. I want to draw you to myself in faith. You know, you can always sense, and you're going to hear in the testimonies this morning, you can always sense when Christ is drawing someone to himself, when they are in the process of having their heart regenerated. They, they, they begin to look at their life and realize Life is not working. And I've kind of tried all the tricks I know, but I just, I just seem stuck. I need, I need help from, that can only come from outside of myself. You can always sense that someone is, is being born again, being, being remade, when they realize, I am a much greater sinner than I ever realized my eyes are being opened to just how flawed, deeply flawed I am, while at the same time, their eyes are being opened to just how great a Savior they have in Jesus Christ. See, that's the process of regeneration. It's not, I'm so terrible, and I'm, I'm kind of over in the corner loathing myself and, and sort of piling guilt on top of myself. It's, no, no, it's, I'm, I'm convinced of who I am, but I'm also convinced of what I need. And what I need 
is Jesus Christ. To draw me to himself, to forgive my sins, to change my heart. And Peter says, this happens when God opens your eyes. When God opens your eyes and you are led to throw yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Folks, you can acknowledge the birth of Jesus Christ. It's important. It's crucial. It's foundational. It's the cornerstone of our faith. But it will do you no spiritual good unless you embrace the reality that what we need are not one birth. We need two. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was born to raise the sons of earth. Jesus was born to give them second birth. Very simple question. Have you been born again? Have you acknowledged your need for saving for Jesus Christ? Cast yourself upon him. This morning, we get to celebrate the symbol of new birth through the ordinance of baptism. I think God is going to bless your socks off today as you hear the testimonies of these young ones who were lost, but now they're found, who were blind, but can now see. One of the, let me just say this, I didn't say it in the first service. One of the things that's striking about these testimonies is that there is such a childlike faith. It is so much easier for a child, a young adult, to admit they don't have it all together. They don't know. They have need. So much harder the older you get to admit how much need that you have. These are folks who've been truly born again. And we are here to celebrate with them this morning. So I direct your attention to the screens.